This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford and I study the history of disease. And I'm Maya and I work in public health in developing areas. Hello. Hi. We're back. <laughs> Welcome back to In Sickness and today we'll be talking about lead poisoning. We wanted to give you kind of like a spooky October poison vibe. So we're going to talk about lead or lead poisoning. Technically, obviously not a disease, but it's something that causes illness. And also it's something that has epidemics. So we felt that it fit into our little particular niche that we have here. So let me just give you the basics. Lead is an element and it's found in the earth's crust in very, very small amounts. And it's really heavy and it's really dense but it's also very soft and it has a low melting point. And that makes it really useful for a lot of things. But even in really tiny amounts, it's super dangerous for humans. However, because of all these attributes, like because it's soft and easy to work with, even early civilizations could melt it quite easily and use it as a metal without needing like a big major sort of smelting fire that reached really, really high temperatures. So it became the norm to use it in plumbing, in bullets, in paint, in batteries, in soldering metal, and all sorts of other really common things. The elemental sign for lead is PB, which stands for plumbum, which I love. <laughs> and plumbum is Latin for liquid silver. And you can see how ubiquitous the use of lead was in that it was used like in the name for plumber. Um, Romans who laid pipes and made drains used lead for those purposes and were therefore named plumbers. And that's what we still call them today. I will give you so much more information about that in a hot second. I can't wait. It is, and this is a total aside and just a personal interest, also one of the elements that has an alchemical symbol because it was a really big part of the study of alchemy, which is the study of turning substances into gold. It was associated with the heavenly body of Saturn, and each of the seven metals known and used in alchemy was associated with a planet, so that you could sort of combine, like, the stars were aligned, and you had this metal and that metal, and it was like science and magic, and you could turn one thing into another. Anyway, for the curious, the other six associations were gold with the sun, mercury associated with mercury, obviously, uh, copper associated with Venus, silver associated with the moon, iron with Mars, and tin with Jupiter. All of which I feel like makes sense. But that's because it's a historical association that's come down to us through popular culture, and you've definitely been encountering those associations between the metals and the planets anyway. Right. Okay. It seems like the word lead that we use now likely came from the Celts, who had the word loud, which means reddish and lead ore often looks red. How do you get lead poisoning, I think, is the real issue at hand. The only issue, really, that matters. Arguably the only issue. So you get lead poisoning by swallowing or breathing too much of lead in the air or in your food or in your water or even through direct contact with your skin. So it basically enters your body and then your body stores it basically in your bones and teeth like 95% of it is just stored like within those calcium deposits it accumulates over time as the amount of lead in your system gets higher and higher that's when you start to see negative side effects now we have a greater regulation around using lead in production of various things 
Um, so there's less risk of lead poisoning, but it's by no means a, a long gone issue. It's still very real. And it is still used in a lot of modern day products, although typically, but not always, with a little bit more oversight. The most common sources of lead poisoning are work-based factors. So people working in mines, around old pipes, in old home renovation, with batteries, things like that. Also people living or spending time in spaces that were built before 1976 because they were still using lead-based paint back then. Also, if you live in a place with a lot of industrial pollution, because it's still used in industrial manufacturing. So actually quite a few risk factors. A quick thing uh, for listeners who are interested in how lead actually binds to your cells, this podcast will kill you uh, with the two Aaron's did a whole episode on lead poisoning, and they spend about half the episode talking about the science behind how the lead gets into your cells and binds there and eventually kills you. So go check them out as well. Once you're suffering from lead poisoning, as an adult, it builds up in your body and you can experience side effects like higher blood pressure, joint pain, issues with memory or concentration, head and body pain, mood swings, and frequently reproductive issues. So both within men in their sperm and women with fetal issues, miscarriages, things like that. Pregnant women who are exposed are more likely to have premature babies with a lower birth rate and slower growth of the child. Kids are much more vulnerable to lead poisoning though. So the most critical side effect of early exposure to lead is developmental delay, which is just tragic. Um, in 2016, it was estimated that lead exposure accounted for 63% of all idiopathic developmental delay and intellectual disability in the world. So idiopathic means that it's spontaneously occurring or from an unknown source. So it would exclude things like autism where you know where the developmental delay may have come from. Mm -hmm. It can also cause in children things like loss of appetite, weight loss, fatigue, vomiting, constipation, and seizures. One of the other really common causes of lead poisoning in kids is pica, which is that thing where you just like pick off small non-food items like paint chips off a wall and just eat them or like hair stuff like that so they just eat things that aren't food and then they get lead poisoning <sighs> okay so if lead poisoning is suspected what you do is a blood test to examine the blood levels of lead um, and like with a lot of diseases we talk about symptoms can be hard to clearly identify so if you're at risk at all it's just better to get screened regularly because often you will detect the high levels in the blood before you will see any symptoms um, and also an issue that I'll talk about later is that there really isn't a lot of health education information around lead poisoning. Like there's a concerted effort to teach people more about it. And I think we all vaguely know like lead bad, but many of us would be hard pressed to sort of say like that would have lead in it. And that's how this person might be getting sick. Mm -hmm. Like we wouldn't automatically identify it as a cause. Or even to just connect all of these various symptoms together especially because they present so differently in adults and children and women and men and no one would ask like I wouldn't be like my kid's vomiting mm -hmm. could you please test them for lead exposure like but it's the thing that we see all the time right like we think we're past this stage where we need to worry about lead toxicity in our environment because we think oh it's 2020 this isn't an issue for us anymore but it clearly is totally okay so you're diagnosed with lead poisoning let's say there are a couple of things that are typically done First, you remove the source of the lead, obviously. So if it's the paint or the dirt or whatever might be like in the house that you live in, or you know if you have a family member that might be bringing in like lead dust into the home, you remove the source. Then <laughs> you remove the family member. Then you change your diet 
to foods that can help reduce lead levels. So iron and other vitamins and minerals can help. And with good nutrition, you might be able to absorb less lead into your body. And that's important when we talk about the environment in places where people are less likely to get lead poisoning because where people are more likely to get lead poisoning because there is an association between things like poor nutrition and income. Anyway, if those two things don't work and you're not able to bring the blood levels down and people are still getting sick, then you get something called chelation therapy. And those are medicines that bind to metals in the body and help remove it by basically making you pee it out. So if you also have like arsenic poisoning or high levels of mercury, they would give you the same therapy because it helps bind these heavy metals and get them out of your body. Mm -hmm. Overall, prevention is still best because that kind of treatment can't reverse damage that's already done. So if you're symptomatic, it can help you stop. Like if you're vomiting all the time because you have lead poisoning, it would stop you from vomiting. But if you are a child who has a developmental delay, that can't be reversed. If you are a woman who is having fertility issues from lead exposure, that can't be reversed. So definitely still important to try and remove that from our environments mm -hmm. lead tragic extremely and preventable with decent housing and safe working practices so in the historical context section today uh, we're going to be looking at humanity's long long relationship with lead um, and how that relation has, relationship has evolved to where we are today um, and this need for occupational medicine and for better education about lead poisoning. So there's just loads to talk about, and I was actually snowed under with sources, which is what we love, and I am really happy to be doing this today because it's another one of those that is super present in our popular culture, and it's probably a topic that everybody has encountered before. So yeah, lead was discovered at the very least in 3500 BC, with lead artifacts discovered pretty much everywhere in the ancient world, um, and by that I'm assuming this article from the 1970s means like ancient Egypt, Greece, Mesopotamia. <laughs> and the thing that I like the most about that article, because like I I don't know if I've ever talked about it on this podcast, but articles in history from the 1970s are hilarious because they just, they just say stuff. They just like make these, these like wildly speculative comments about things that might've happened. For example, that the first discovery of metallic lead may well have resulted from the accidental dropping of Galena onto a campfire. I actually read almost the same thing, except I think it was Pliny who was like, mm -hmm. we started using red lead for stuff because like a house burned down and all the lead in the pipes turned red and we were like, ah, magical, mystical mm -hmm. medicine, whatever. See, we would be having a totally different conversation if this person had quoted Pliny, but they didn't. <laughs> They're just like, you never know, this could have been what happened. Exactly. Like the house fire makes sense because pipes, fire. I mean, I'm not arguing with it either because I'm sure that's exactly what happened. <laughs> but do I want to put that in my peer-reviewed article? You can't just say that. And also, by the way, Galena, it's a sulfide ore of lead. Uh, with the chemical symbol PBS. Galena is commonly found in nature, whereas pure lead, the element, is, is not normally. Uh, and it's especially valued for its associ association with silver, 
and for its role in silver mining. So you could actually recover varying amounts of silver from Galena by smelting the lead from it, which I'd imagine is part of why it's so important in alchemy. So the Egyptians of all ranks used coal or black eyeliner that was made from powdered minerals such as Galena or lead sulfite, or stibnite, which contains antimony, which is also toxic, and that's a little bit of foreshadowing there to, uh, to like my little <laughs> discussion about toxic ma makeup that's coming towards you. The Romans were prolific consumers of lead, and they produced 60,000 tons of it per year for 400 years. That's a lot. What? Yeah. What the hell? How did they survive? Uh, well, they didn't, and they were using it for these like major lead piping systems for plumbing and running water and aqueducts and they would produce these massive flat sheets of lead because it was so easy to use and easy to make. And the Romans and the Greeks had this habit of coating all of their cooking pots in lead because it avoided the bad taste in your food that heating up your food in something like copper ceramics would have. And they used to prepare wine and grape syrup with, with these like lead covered receptacles. So Pliny, he recommends boiling your grape syrup and preparing your sweetened wine in lead vessels. Yum. Yeah, and this refers to the Roman uh, and Greek habit of using lead to improve the quality of bad wine because it could be used as a preservative because it slowed down the decay of this organic material. Can you imagine? This is actually still a thing, which kind of makes me curious about what lead tastes like because I would have assumed it just tasted like rust. Like, it doesn't mm. seem appealing, but there is actually still a spice in Iran that's used for, like, coloring and cooking food, kind of like saffron or turmeric, and it's just, it's just lead. Mm-hmm. That's a spice that's just lead. Yeah, uh, that's going to be a theme here. Just uh, stay tuned. What does it taste like, though? <laughs> lead is well known as a preservative, and the thing is, you don't need a whole lot for it to have that effect, so I, I doubt you're even tasting the lead at that point. It's just preventing whatever organic material it comes into contact with from decaying right away. For example, lead coffins. If you open them up, people inside are really well preserved. Anyway, lead is actually part of one of the big theories about the fall of Rome. The theory about the fall of Rome in this case is that lead poisoning, widespread lead poisoning, caused the birth rate among the patrician class to decline because they were the ones who were doing the heavy drinking and they were the ones who had access to running water and plumbing. So they were actually the ones with the most lead in their systems. So I'm sure they had kids who also probably had a lot of developmental delays. When they were having kids at all. So yeah, that's a theory. I don't know. People have a lot of theories about that. But if you think about like Nero, who's a famous cuckoo pants. Yeah. Like there could, you know, framed in like, well, he was just suffering from lead poisoning. Yeah, I mean, we might as well talk about it now. Like this is a theme I'm going to keep coming back to. Like there is... Uh, a trend right now in history, and I'd say in, in the past maybe 20, 30 years, where people will take a factor like lead poisoning or substance abuse and go back over very well-known historical events or figures to sort of explain their behavior or try to shed new light on their motivations. And if you think about someone like Nero, who has come down to us as someone who was either evil or crazy or both, and you add lead poisoning to the mix, it's entirely possible that he could have really been suffering from some sort of de developmental issue created by the lead poisoning, or that he was ingesting a lot of lead himself, or both. 
you know, some fun combination of all of these things. <laughs> it doesn't really change anything, but it's interesting to look back on it in that light and think about, yeah. yeah, think about his behavior. I think that's a really interesting because there's, you know, they're notorious for paranoia and killing people and not having babies and, I don't know, anyway. So, actually, descriptions of lead poisoning aren't that common in ancient medical texts. However, it was known that lead fumes, so from heated lead or from mines, uh, were poisonous. So Pliny <laughs> gives warnings about that like environmental lead exposure, but he's also recommending that you boil your wine in lead-covered vessels, so I don't know. So I don't know if they, if they looked at that situation and thought, okay, well, you've got, you've got the benefits of lead, which is preserving your foodstuffs and better taste, versus the risks. Uh, toxicity. I don't know. I mean, listen, then again, they were really into vapors. Mm -hmm. So maybe the fact that it was in the air. I mean, we've talked about miasma theory before, and that's something that was really old, and people wouldn't necessarily connect cause and effect. They might have just thought it was like, I don't know, the smell of this particular thing will make you ill. But then again, without further, further reading, I couldn't tell you in this specific case. Why don't we all just be 1970s academics? Should I just make a sweeping generalization about it? Here's what I think probably could have happened, but have no proof. I think Pliny had had too much lead-contaminated wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good guess. So yeah, if anybody knows about this, is an expert on environmental history of the Roman Empire, I would love to hear from you. Please message me. Anyway... So <laughs> they are actually acknowledging the problem of, of lead toxicity, but they're not discontinuing the use of these vessels. So I can't imagine they weren't making that connection, though. And I found a couple of papers that do agree with me. Although, of course, it's really hard to tell because retrospective diagnosis, that same old refrain, <laughs> it's so hard to tell because the categories are so fluid for symptoms and et cetera, et cetera, the usual. Uh, so lead continued to be used into the Middle Ages, and lead acetate, aka lead sugar, was used to sweeten wine and ciders, which caused epidemics of lead poisoning. But they weren't actually really talking about it in medical texts, but you do have evidence that, for example, in 1498 and 1577, some German countries introduced the death penalty for people who were caught sweetening their wine or ciders with lead sugars that's wild also because just like use normal sugar or like a grape like i don't all right whatever they they weren't like mass producing cane sugar yet or at least it, normal not. people wouldn't have had access to that it was a luxury honey honey uh, it just feels like there's a lot of options that are just as easy as making a lead mm -hmm. sugar i don't know whatever i've never tried to make lead sugar before maybe it's really easy i don't know i wouldn't recommend that as your next project, I mean, are you done with the kombucha yet, or...? I should sweeten it with lead! Lead was also used medicinally, same as in antiquity, to speed up the curative powder powers of other medications, so they would just, like, add a dash of lead, and supposedly that would cure you faster. Well, you wouldn't be sick anymore. From an industrial point of view, pottery, shipbuilding, piping, window making, the arms industry, and when it became a thing, book printing, they all become professions with a widespread use of lead. As I said, it wasn't really being mentioned in the medical literature until Paracelsus describes in the 16th century what he calls the miner's disease. So during this time, lead poisoning reaches epidemic proportions in Europe and in, in the Americas. 
And then the next big landmark for lead poisoning is in 1767, when Sir George Baker identifies the cause of what is called the Devonshire colic, which afflicts the region for 100 years and has a really high case fatality. So he identifies the cause of this epidemic as cider contaminated with lead. I was really interested in this particular case because I remember when we were doing the cholera episode, we talked about Jon Snow as the father of public health and the father of modern epidemiology because he uh, investigated the source of an epidemic and figured out that it was coming from this one pump in this one neighborhood. And I guess maybe the distinction is that he was doing a lot of interviewing, and that was like the cornerstone of his public health approach. Uh, But it seems to me that Sir George Baker is actually doing the same thing in 1767. I think probably the difference is that something was contaminated, which was understood as like Mm. a way that people could get sick, versus like a tiny bacteria being in the water. Mm-hmm. And, like, people were spreading it with them, which is quite different, right? Yeah. Because, like, you could take it back to the source of where the cider was made mm-hmm. versus, like, people are carrying the disease outward from this pump with But them. if you'll remember at the point that we're talking about with Jon Snow, they hadn't discovered the actual uh, microorganism yet, had they? Right, which is what made it so much less believable, mm. I think, That's is true. the difference. You know what I mean? Like, just... I, it seems as though people understood that lead was poisonous at this point. Possibly, but they also understood that in certain environments, water could be poisonous. Like, I'm not sure they would have been able to tell the difference, is what I'm saying. Yeah, So interesting. I guess it's it's like a retrospective thing that we decided that, looking back, Jon Snow is now considered the father of modern epidemiology. Yeah. Because now we see that that is a pathogen and this is not. Yeah, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. I was curious about that. Interesting. It is interesting. Did they know that lead was poisonous, I guess, would be my big question. Like, at what point was someone like, this is not good for the human body? Well, (laughs) interesting that you should ask. So before we move on, he actually tracked down the source of the contamination uh, of this outbreak of what he thought, what, what they were calling Devonshire colic. So he tracked that down to the weights that were being used to crush the apples. Wow. So there was lead leaching from the weights being used to crush the apples into the cider. Just goes to show how little lead you need to make someone really ill also. Mm-hmm. And this is going on for a hundred years, according to that article. And everyone's just like, I guess we just die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people must have thought it was like, I don't know, dysentery. Yeah, there, was, I guess. there are a lot of like, I don't know, GI issues, aren't there? Like, a lot of um, abdominal pain. Yeah. The first clinical descriptions aren't until 1831, 1832, by Lenek and then Thackeray, who talks about plumbers and white lead manufacturers. So this is, like, the first sustained study of occupational health, really, to do with lead. And then in 18, 1838, you have uh, the famous Traité des maladies de plomb ou saturnine, which is, like, a treatise on, on diseases of Saturnine or of lead, which is by Les Planches, based on over 1,200 cases and describing the arthritic, neurological, and abdominal symptoms of lead poisoning, labeling them all lead poisoning for the first time, like looping all these categories together and indicating that the cause is lead. So this is huge. 1838. And then from that point onward, you increasingly have medical research being done on these different manifestations of lead poisoning probably because you're just seeing it so much more due to heavy industry. So I won't list all of the developments, but a picture starts to emerge of how harmful lead actually is to health, 
no matter how the symptoms manifest in the patient. So whether that's like lead colic, lead palsy, lead encephalopathy, etc. And all of these things culminate in the big 20th century prevention efforts and the beginnings of occupational medicine. I wanted to take a second to talk about lead-based makeup because I just find it really interesting. I don't know, it's just one of the one of the things that most people will have come across if they've ever watched a film about a high-ranking woman. These toxic beauty trends have been around pretty much forever and they still exist. Like we still put dangerous stuff on our faces and into our bodies in this endless quest to look young and attractive for as long as possible. So I want to talk about the long, long legacy of this impulse to sort of help us to understand why this might be. Also an interesting parallel here with this like pale face makeup based on lead, I would say, is the modern skin whitening cream, Mm -hmm. which is arguably equally toxic. It's so bad for you and super, super widespread. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's something about fashion that will make you overlook some of these risks, even if you are aware of them. Um, Like, I refuse to believe that generations of women had been using these products and even accounting for a much shorter lifespan, you still would have been noticing problems with this like for example the white lead powder which is actually used for paints and like 18th century artworks as well eventually when it's mixed with oil it creates this luminous white color that looks totally unnatural but just like looks really gorgeous I guess but when you makes it just look like an oil painting probably yeah yeah uh and when you wear that on your skin for prolonged periods of time It causes your skin to become like almost porous or spongy. It's really gross and it totally destroys your skin barrier anyway. So I refuse to believe that uh, aristocratic women were not noticing this. They, They just knew that if they didn't, they would not fit in and it was a marker of your of your status. So you just did it. In the same way that uh, another crazy beauty trend in the, like, 14th... I think it's the 14th or 15th centuries. Women used to, like, wax their hairlines back. Yeah, what was that about? To have to have a higher forehead, because that was a signifier of your class. I mean rank. Status symbol. I have made an anachronism. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. So, yeah, uh, women have been using lead-based paints, among other toxic things... For example, I talked about antimony in the uh, eyeliner, or something I didn't mention is uh, they would make rouge out of arsenic. Belladonna eye drops? Belladonna eye drops to what? make your pupils larger. I was going to talk about Elizabeth I because she's such a famous example and probably the one example that most people have heard of. So she caught smallpox. And after she survived smallpox, her face was really scarred and her hair was kind of falling out. So she began using what was called, and I guess still is called, Venetian ceruse, which is uh, white lead, to hide her scars. And that resulted in even worse damage to her skin in the long run, because as I said, it really damages your skin. Uh, And essentially, the more you wear it, the more you need to wear it. And some even speculate that she died of lead poisoning, but I'll leave that to the Tudor historians to tell me. She was famously volatile, so it, I guess lead poisoning could have been a factor in that. Or she could have just been brought up an aristocrat and, you know, been your classic absolutist <laughs> monarch, which might have contributed to the volatility. Anyway, who knows? Call me, call me. What we do know is that the stakes were super high when it came to her self-image, and the lead paint 
became a part of her rebranding as what is called Gloriana, or the Virgin Queen. And she essentially avoided marriage to a foreign prince and the inevitable loss of power that would result from that by becoming married to her country. And so the Virgin Queen, unable to ever get married and able to like refashion herself almost in the image of the Virgin Mary, rising above the earthly confines of her female body. Because if you'll remember, in the early modern period, women were not able to do anything (laughs) or own anything. So the idea that you had a woman in charge of a church full of men and also in charge of a country full of men was problematic for the early modern minds. It's kind of like two competing things. You have the status quo where men are above women and then you have the status quo where uh, you have the divine right of kings and the person who's chosen to be king or in this case queen has been chosen directly by God. So anyway, that's a little crash course for you. That was a lot of information. But all you have to remember about that is that to maneuver through the politics of that extremely complicated situation, she decided that a PR campaign was the best thing to do, and her lead paint was the thing that helped her get there. And we could discuss the motivations behind that forever, but we won't. (laughs) And I think we can all agree that it's just brilliant political maneuvering, and that's all I'm going to say about it. So was the lead paint worth it, is what I'm saying. Well, I also know there's a lot of discussion and debate around, like, her various sexual liaisons and, like, not having kids. Mm -hmm. And I know, obviously, there were other methods of preventing pregnancy, but I wonder if lead also played a role in that. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe it helped her out in that respect, too. Maybe it did. I'm the wrong person to ask because I stopped studying Tudor England like five years ago. But So convoluted. Yeah, it's really complicated. Personally, I think the stakes were a bit too high. Like if she had gotten caught and she was the subject of intense scrutiny all the time. I don't think the woman was ever alone. No, seems ballsy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the makeup stuff is really interesting and I'll touch on it a little bit too Mm -hmm. but this like this goes back to the uh to the nero situation that we were talking about right it's so interesting to to go in the direction of this new kind of history and think about these big names in history within the context of their potential drug use and i know that there's there's been some work done recently that's super interesting about the third reich and methamphetamines oh yeah there's a book about that that's crazy Yeah, so the two that I have listed here are Blitzed, Drugs, and Nazi Germany. That's what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, that was, like, groundbreaking. And the other one is called Killer High, A History of War in Six Drugs, which I really want to read. And, like, as soon as as someone says that to you, you think, oh, of course, this is ridiculous, in the same way that, like, when you start to think about diseases in world history, you think oh, why is it that we've taken this for granted? It's something that is ever-present, but no less impactful for that reason. Mm -hmm. It's really cool, and it poses a lot of really interesting questions. Yeah, like, for example, how our world and lifestyle have shaped themselves around diseases that we haven't figured out how to get rid of. Mm -hmm. That just, like, we live with. Yeah, and I think uh, the lure of what are called, like, alternative histories is very strong. So, for example, taking a a pivotal moment in history and imagining how it could have gone the other way. And I know this happens a lot with uh, the Second World War. Like, it's everywhere in popular culture. All of these shows, all of these movies, these books where um, people are imagining what would have happened if the Third Reich had won. 
if Hitler had won the Second World War and what the world would look like. It's really cool, and I think it's uh, it's a pretty human impulse to think about that. Yeah. And disease and drugs and the environment coming into histories, I think, is partly motivated by that. I think you're very right. Yeah, like, if we didn't... And even just not... Not even just in history, like, if we didn't have this, what would life be like? Mm-hmm. Right now, what would I be doing? What would the what would the world be like? What would I mean? I think we're all particularly susceptible to that right now. Mm-hmm. Like if this disease wasn't here, things would be different. I think it's tempting. I think it's also kind of part of the grief <laughs> where we feel regret because we feel like we've lost seven months of our lives. Bummer. I think we're at a weird point right now where we're not in lockdown. Things are pretty bad, but. <laughs> But we're all kind of pretending that everything's normal and trying to function because what else can we do? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about lead in the modern day. And I'm actually going to go in a little bit of a different direction and talk about lead in modern traditional medicine around the world. And it was either that or mining. (laughs) And I was like, listen, none of this is going to be a good time. So the thing is, obviously, traditional medicine has like historical roots, et cetera, et cetera. But what doesn't? But I think what's interesting is that in a lot of places, we see traditional medicine as sort of a thing of the past. And that's quite foolish for a number of reasons that I will get into. But also having lived in places like South Africa, there's, there's a lot of ways that we can be integrating this kind of thing into the modern day. And I've never been anywhere besides there where there's such a relationship between, you know, civil law, common law, and traditional law. And then all those courts and those relationships sort of come together in a really interesting way. And I think that that also relates to tradition and traditional medicine. It's very contextual, but it's very important because it can bring a lot of value. Anyway, So let's quickly talk about traditional medicine. The WHO defines it in this very long and complicated way. It's the sum total of the knowledge, skills, and practices that are based on theories, beliefs, and experiences indigenous to different cultures, whether explicable or not, that are used in the maintenance of health, as well as in prevention, diagnosis, improvement, or treatment of physical and mental illness. So more easily put, it's healthcare based on traditional knowledge that is passed down. There is occasionally this differentiation between traditional medicine and folk medicine, folk medicine being done by a lay person rather than a trained traditional medical professional. But the real distinction we need to make is between traditional and alternative or complementary medicine. Complementary medicine is a non-standard, air quotes, medicine. And these days by standard medicine, we mean scientific medicine. Okay, so for example, a complementary medicine would be like homeopathy. Yeah. Or acupuncture yes so it's called complementary because it's something that's not a scientific medicine that's used alongside the treatment recommended by standard medicine so a good example would be changing your diet to go along with a cancer treatment okay so while they're often lumped into the same terminology um and referred to as the same thing alternative medicine differs from complementary medicine Uh, in that it's when you actually replace a standard medical treatment with this other alternative form of treatment. And there are like some slightly blurred lines here. For example, some complementary medicines are actually a form of medicine that's not traditional in the country in which it's being used, but is a traditional medicine somewhere else. 
which is like a very complicated way of putting it, but basically like let's take Ayurvedic medicine, which is Indian. So there's a lot of Ayurvedic medicine all around the world. If I was using Ayurvedic medicine here in Canada alongside going to my normal doctor, that would be complementary medicine. But in India, Ayurvedic medicine is just the traditional healthcare system. So there it would be traditional medicine. Anyway, the lines are obviously a little bit blurry. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I think is the most important thing here is that any of those systems are still healthcare systems. They just operate differently than the system that we and most of our listeners are used to. And I think overall in public health and as people studying health, we can probably learn a lot from that. The thing to remember with both alternative and traditional medicine is that it's often based on this concept that like natural means good and that the only success stories you really need is not like peer-reviewed documents, but you just need success stories. Of course, neither of those things is actually true, right? No, not all traditional medicines will hurt you. Some are really effective. Some are just placebos. But the issue is more in the lack of regulation of those medicines. I, for one, am in favor of this movement towards like examining some traditional medicines or like herbal medication to see what their impact is and incorporating that into a more integrated and holistic medical approach. I think that's super relevant and there has been an uptick in that. As of right now, 170 member countries of the World Health Organization have recognized traditional medicine as it's used in their countries. The whole continent of Africa has accepted traditional medicine and is like researching it in a scientific way, specifically for COVID, but has been since 2015. And collectively, the WHO is making this really concerted effort to discover and support those medications, which are proven effective, which overall is like a great move in terms of making care really affordable and really effective, especially because in countries across Asia and Africa, about 80% of the population uses traditional medicine as its main system Mm -hmm. of healthcare. And so it's really- amazing. I know it's a huge number because like we've talked before about how difficult it is to uh, to have like medical interventions or public health interventions in any country that is not your own or rather to like have outsiders coming in to help you with anything. So actually, if you're taking traditional medicine seriously and trying to see how you can work together, for example, I don't know, use traditional medicine and also come in with your vaccination program, that's like a built in trusted public health apparatus that's at your that's great yeah and I wouldn't say we're like there yet but I think that's a really interesting goal to work towards Mm -hmm. and you see that there's one like traditional thing in terms of health that's talked about a lot in this context that's female genital mutilation and the reason it's talked about a lot in this context is because basically people are like just cancel it it's bad and it's illegal and you should make it illegal and no one should ever do it And so they made it illegal and then, you know, girls would engage in the mutilation themselves and they also ignored the fact that a lot of other important information was also translated through this network of a traditional healthcare system. And it wasn't like just mutilation, it was also sexual health and maintaining a household and all these other important things. So all this to say that we can't just basically say there's one thing that's bad and therefore traditional healthcare is bad, we can say this is actually a really beneficial system that people actively use, but you can't just say don't do any of it just because one part of it might not, might be bad for you. Anyway, so back to lead. 
it's just like really common in traditional medicine still, like extremely common. And it, this kind of blew my mind, to be honest. And I'm going to give you some different examples, but I wanted to try and explore why it was so common. And this actually turned out to be a hard question to answer, aside from the fact that it's kind of easy to find, I think. Um, for one thing, lead holds color really well, specifically red, yellow, white. It has like a really vibrant shade. That's why it was in paint. That's why it was in makeup. That's why it, for what it's worth, still is in makeup. There are like high lead levels in some lipsticks and it's not regulated as well as it should. And anyway, that kind of color can make it really appealing for the medicine itself, but also for like a coating of a pill. You know, when you get like a pill, it's a bright red or yellow color. And I think that's something that's done intentionally. Anyway, um, you were talking about galena earlier, which is the natural mineral form of lead. Yep. And that's just like super, super common. It's everywhere. And it's really good for things like glazing pottery or making coal eyeliner. And when you do these processes, sometimes the different colors emerge, like heating it up, it might change color, which might lend to this idea that it should be used as medicine, right? Like it's, got, it's undergone a change and that means it might create a change itself. Sometimes it just enters the medicine by mistake, like it's part of the processing area. Or in some places, let's say the ash of a leaf is being used as a treatment. And if you ate one leaf, it would have totally unnoticeable amounts of lead. But if you burn a thousand leaves and you compress the ash into a pill, now you're eating 1,000 times the amount of lead. That might be another reason it's so commonly found in medication. And there also is sort of a component around this idea of like a natural mineral and how heavy metals can affect your body. And the same thing is true of like taking zinc, right? Zinc is a super common vitamin that people take all the time to like help their immune system. And so you can see why another heavy metal might be seen as like another medication that could be useful. Oof. Whatever the real reason for <laughs> each individual time it happens, it does appear in like a lot of places around the world. And I'm going to tell you about some of them. Let's start with the form of traditional medicine that got me started on this idea. Uh, with a big thanks to my friend Rachel who raised it. Lead-based traditional medicine is very common in Latin American culture. One form of that is as a treatment for something called el empacho, which is essentially this blanket term that's used for any form of indigestion. So there are a lot of causes for el empacho, and there are a lot of solutions like drinking mint tea, like a lot of them are totally fine. But two of the really common sources of medicine are basically just pure lead. <laughs> One of them is called azarcon, and it's a bright orange powder. And the other one is called Greta, and it's a bright yellow powder. And they're both up to like 99% pure lead. And those medications are also used for other things that occur really frequently, especially in children, such as constipation, colic, diarrhea, vomiting, teething. They're obtained from potters. And basically what the parent will do is just like dip a fingertip in it and give it to the kid orally, which is like the worst way that you can get lead. Let's remember what you said at the top. If a kid is like teething, you'd like rub it on their gums, like the same way some parents do with like rum or whatever. But obviously that can cause like a real illness in children and in adults, but in children, obviously you can get severe developmental delays. And so my friend was telling me that especially 
in like in California where there's a large Latin American population, they'll frequently have to sit down patients and once they've identified what these symptoms might be, basically show them a bunch of pictures and be like, did you by choice give your child any of these? And like they might say, yes, I chose to give them like azarcon. And then, then you have to tell the parent like, well, I'm sorry, the reason your kid is sick is because of this medication that you treat them. And it is often given as like a complementary medication like sometimes they'll do it along with going to a doctor and sometimes not and of course if you're not going to a doctor it would be way harder to identify those symptoms also if you're trying to treat indigestion and lead makes you really constipated you know what you might just do eat more lead so kind of a lose-lose situation there okay another common source of lead poisoning from traditional medicine is a dominican like dominican republic remedy called litargirio this is a yellow or orange powder, <laughs> unsurprisingly, and it's usually like 70% lead-based, and it's used for a variety of things, but typically as a deodorant to remove body odor or sprinkled on feet for fungal stuff, like foot fungus, and it's packaged as an herbal remedy in the Dominican and then sent to places like the U.S., where it's sold at like corner stores and stuff like that and people you know remember it from home and use it or introduce their kids to it and then people get really sick and it, it was causing a lot of poisonings for a while but like it's an herbal remedy so it's basically free for most regulation which is a whole different story about vitamins and supplements and I would recommend listening to the podcast The Dream to any who are interested. Okay Another area of traditional medicine that is causing lead poisoning is Ayurvedic medicine. So Ayurvedic medicine originated in India, and it's this sort of holistic approach to health based on medicine, diet, exercise like yoga, and other lifestyle changes. And again, some of those interventions are safe and helpful. They've been scientifically proven. Largely changes in exercise, changes in diet, changes in lifestyle, but some herbal remedies also fine. Harder to prove many of them, but some do seem to show benefits. However, some remedies include the uses of ash or of heavy metals in the treatment, which, you guessed it, include lead. And this, and I did not know this, this is because Ayurvedic medicine believes that there is a balance of basic elements. In your body and so and that matches the balance in the universe and so if there is a disease present in your body it is because of, of an imbalance in those basic elements therefore those elements are added back into your body so heavy metals like lead but also mercury are added to medications in order to bring your body back into balance and sometimes they're they go through like a detoxification process which I use quite loosely um, because it is through things like heating it, soaking it in sesame oil, buttermilk, cow urine, wrapping it in plants or tamarind, or, you know, treating it with arsenic, which is not really helpful. This Ayurvedic medicine does seem to be one of the most pervasive sources of lead poisoning, not just in India, but like around the world, because there just isn't any regulation on that kind of traditional medicine. Lots of studies have been done on the lead and heavy metal content of various Ayurvedic medicines, and like regularly they turn up high levels of various heavy metals in them. 
and they're just like important and people take them because they trust them and that is of course the inherent risk and it's not just traditional medicine again this is a soapbox but like the entire vitamin and supplement industry is totally unregulated and if someone says like this random supplement made me feel all these different things then it's probably really dangerous because nobody tested it for anything like it's far better to have a placebo in one of them because like you just don't know anyway so there are a few other traditional medicines that are known for containing lead, and I'm just going to rattle them off real quick. They include a colic medicine from China and another colic medicine from Iran that is mixed with honey and butter and called Daughter of Gold, mm. which so far is the only one that I get because that sounds kind of good. <laughs> that sounds delicious. Um, there's a Burmese infant indigestion remedy, and then there's also coal for the eyes, which is like relatively ubiquitous like a lot of countries did that nigeria northern africa very common and that's often put on not just for adults to look pretty but also on children to ward off the evil eye and improve their eyesight which again like if you've got a kid that has something in their face they're going to touch it mm. and they're probably going to touch it, lick their fingers <laughs> actually i read a i read a really interesting article earlier about the um, lead-based eye makeup in ancient Egypt and saying that there was actually some evidence that it might prevent certain types of eye infection and because <laughs> because life expectancy was so low you just never really had the chance to see that many of the long-term effects of lead poisoning and I was like oh ooh, sounds highly suspect but I kind of like it <laughs> Maybe it was doing its job. It was warding off the evil eye. You just died of natural causes long before anything else bad could happen. Exactly. You. you thought you were going to escape some discussion of inequality and injustice, but nah. So in the U.S., at least, traditional medicine may account for up to 30% of childhood lead poisonings. But very few children, I think something like 14% of all children, are ever even tested for lead. Um, it's just, like, not a well-known issue. And again, like, so many diseases that we've talked about, these symptoms could be so many things. In some places, for example, in Texas, very close to the Mexican border, traditional medicines are being banned. This is actually arguably really bad because many people are already hesitant to tell their doctors that they're using complementary medicine because they're afraid that that's going to be negatively received. So it might actually make it harder to identify the core issue because you wouldn't want to tell your doctor that you were doing anything else besides what they were saying. But actually looking at things like hysteria, for example, and the conversations we had about that, I mean, those concerns might actually be justified now. Yeah, I, and I mean, within communities where the use of traditional medicine maybe still is more pervasive, especially in places like the United States, relationships with um, institutions, access to things like formal or standardized healthcare might be very different than, you know, like I'm, I grew up in North America and my family has no system of traditional medicine. And so I would go to a doctor first. And that's not true culturally for many, many other people, but that might also inherently represent like a different relationship with yeah. doctors. But as we've talked about before, like our relationship to our healthcare provider is completely based on trust. And if you don't trust 
the GP in your area, then that's not the person you're going to go to first, is it? Exactly. And I, I mean, I personally have done a lot of research around trust and who has information that seems relatable to you. And the answer is much more often somewhere in your community. In the same vein, it's true as with like almost anything else, that vulnerable groups are more susceptible to lead poisoning, especially within children. So mobile, migrant, refugee, and immigrant children have far higher blood lead levels than other groups of children. Sometimes it's up to 40% of those kids have higher blood levels than is safe. And although deaths from lead poisoning are relatively rare, there are still severe side effects of the illness, such as like impaired intelligence or neurodevelopment issues that can last someone's entire lifetime. And as mentioned, it's hard to catch that early because people are so unaware and it can take so long to manifest. I don't really know if I have a concluding thought on that, besides the fact that it, I didn't know it was so common in traditional medicine. I'm still a little bit like, but why? <laughs> but it is obviously critical to have, and like, there are a lot of interest groups that are going around trying to inform people more that like using lead is dangerous. But I think there's really a balance to strike between like driving something underground because you're just like negating someone's personal and traditional values and being like, it's not that there's no value in what you're doing. Here's some new information, though, to incorporate into that practice. And it's, it's happened in many other places and many other topics. And so I think it's possible and relevant. I mean, listen, things like aspirin, aspirin's just willow bark, but stronger, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not like herbal and traditional medicine has no place. It does. It does. We just have to be cautious and informed about Mm -hmm. it amen to that the end (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure i have any concluding thoughts about this topic either i don't know do you have anything positive news to share well we're back that's already good news it's lovely to see your face it's lovely to be here i binged um all of the haunting of bly manor over the weekend it's really good and i keep wanting to just drop the phrase perfectly splendid for no reason (laughs) um okay what are my hurries we have been watching The Vow, which is about the Nexium cult. It's it's an HBO show, so it like airs every week. How long has it been since I watched a show that's still coming out? It's actually excruciating. It's like wake up on Monday morning and be like, it's horrible. Oh my god, I could watch The Vow yeah. tonight. But it's good. I don't know if you've already listened to the CBC podcast. About I haven't. Nexium. Nope. I would also do that. It's also very good. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. my knitting project. I think I'm finally going to finish one. My hot water bottle needs a little cozy, so I'm making... You saw it. It's a cute little bobbled hot water bottle cover, and I'm going to be very cozy. Should we finish this? We should finish this. So join us next time for another episode about poison. We're just happy to be back. We are know? happy to be back. Good to be here. We just want to remind you to stay enraged and stay engaged (laughs) see you next time bye thank you for listening to in sickness researched and hosted by angeliki and maya intro track and logo by adrian morningstar sound editing by maya